Peace be with you. I'm going to sit right there. All right. <clears throat> Somebody's got to sit on the front row. Um, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. And today is the second Sunday in Advent. Um, it's a season within the Christian calendar that teaches us to long for Christmas, where we celebrate and remember the arrival of our Messiah and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're currently preaching through the opening chapters of the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, This book was written to a predominantly Jewish audience, and so he tells the Christmas story in such a way that would speak to Jews in particular. And so over the next couple weeks, we're hoping to show the arrival of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament taught. Okay. The story of our redemption began with a scandalous teen pregnancy. That's amazing. That is amazing. Think about it. If you, if you were writing this story, is that how you would begin? If you were trying to fabricate a story so that people would worship Jesus or acknowledge his kingship, is that the origin story you would attempt to tell? No. Moms, think about this. Through morning sickness and the daily discomfort of pregnancy, through the sheer agony of childbirth, through the inconvenience of nursing a crying infant in the dead of night, God came to redeem the world. And that should lend infinite dignity to your own task as you go about raising your children. passage of scripture we're looking at today is about a young family, and so I've divided, uh, I've divided the sermon into three points, the mother, the father, and the child. Let me set the stage just a bit. Ancient Jewish marriage customs were very different from our customs in the West. Uh, marriages were arranged by, by the parents and bound by contract, and once that contract was drafted, the couple was considered married, even though the ceremony and the consummation were many months away. So it was during this period of betrothal, before Joseph and Mary had come together, that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was a pregnant virgin. And this is what Christians call the doctrine of the virgin birth. But why is the virgin birth so important for Christians? Surely, Christianity would be a a bit more believable if we dropped the whole virgin birth thing, right? Well, the answer to this question takes us all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible. Adam was the first man, and God promised him eternal paradise, provided he obey one simple command, not to partake of one particular tree in a garden full of trees. But Adam rebelled. He sinned. And that sin corrupted his nature. And then he passed on that nature to his children. In fact, one of his sons ended up murdering the other. And so because Adam failed to uphold his end of this paradise agreement, we are now faced with two realities. If you're taking notes, jot these down. Number one, mankind must suffer the consequences of sin in a broken world. And number two, Mankind is responsible to repair what is broken. But as it turns out, we're really only good at the first thing, right? 
we are good at sinning and suffering the consequences of our sin, that comes naturally for each of us. But we're powerless to repair what is broken in the world. And I know you feel that. We are faced with that reality every day. In small ways, you know, we can make the world a better place, yes. But we are ultimately powerless to repair what is broken fundamentally. And the Old Testament actually demonstrates both of these realities very clearly. One, it shows mankind suffering the consequences of sin. And two, it shows man's inability to repair what is broken. The Old Testament presents a dead end for mankind. It's meant, it's meant to teach us to abandon all hope of justifying ourselves. And it's meant to, it's meant to show us that God is our only hope. It's our, he's our only way out. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see the Bible describe Jesus as yet another Adam. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Adam was our representative when he sinned at the tree, and Jesus was our representative when he obeyed at the tree, that is, the cross. And so Jesus came into the world to, one, suffer the consequences of Adam's sin, and two, to repair what Adam had broken. His resurrection from the dead snapped the curse and began the process of restoring what had been broken. But, and here's the thing, in order to represent humanity, right, we were, we were responsible to repair what is broken. So in order for Jesus to represent humanity, he needed to be a human with a physical body like ours. And he got that from his mother Mary. But at the same time, he was fully God. He was born without our sinful nature, and he got that from his father, right? And so the virgin birth is like a bypass surgery for human nature. It was absolutely essential if God was going to become not just a man, but a sinless man. And so even as Protestants, we should be able to acknowledge the importance of Mary here in this story. God used her in order to put on flesh, and God put on flesh in order to redeem us. Luke 1.48 says that all generations will call Mary blessed. And so like Abraham or Moses or David or the Apostle Paul, we should be able to call Mary blessed without then going on to worship her. Right? And so the virgin birth was necessary but it was still scandalous. Fortunately, Mary was betrothed to a just, upright, and righteous man. Verse 19 says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, Joseph was in a tough spot, obviously. Jewish law typically required a man to divorce an adulterous wife. And Mary could have been stoned for what appeared to be an infidelity on her part. But Joseph didn't want that, and so his plan was to divorce her quietly. And it's at that point that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. It's so important. Son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in Hebrew, the name, Je- the name Jesus just means God saves. So an angel tells Joseph that his fiance was actually impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Oh. Okay. That, that, makes, that makes total sense. Um, no, for even the most faithful man, that is a tough pill to swallow. But to his credit, Joseph obeys immediately. He marries Mary and he receives her son, naming him Jesus. And this was very important because having Joseph as an earthly father put Jesus within the line of King David, which the Old Testament required. So I want to pause here to see what we can learn from Joseph's decision-making process. I find it very interesting that the Bible affirms Joseph and his plan to divorce Mary quietly calling him just, even as an angel comes to tell him that God has a different plan. Right? I find it very interesting that the Bible affirms Joseph's plan even as God changes his plan. Joseph was trying to act wisely under the circumstances, and he was commended for it, and yet God intervened. What does that mean for us? I think it means that we don't have to be paralyzed by life's big decisions. Like Joseph, we have the scriptures that give us wisdom. We can act justly and righteously even without dreams and visions from God. You know, that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. And it doesn't mean that God can't speak that way. It just means that we shouldn't look to Joseph's decision and, and see it as a prescription for our own decision-making process. We shouldn't wait for God to speak to us in a dream before we choose a house or a spouse or a career. The Word of God and the Spirit of God through the people of God give us all the wisdom we need to make life's big decisions. Think about it. God redirected Joseph in a dream, not because Joseph's plan was wrong, but because God actually wanted him to act against the grain of wisdom. Under ordinary circumstances, Joseph's plan was good. But these were not ordinary circumstances. God was doing something extraordinary. And so we don't have to be paralyzed by life's big decisions. And the Bible affirms us when we act wisely and righteously. And from there, Joseph's role in this story gets even more interesting. And we're We're going to be dipping into the next couple of weeks, the next couple passages a bit, but I want to give you a a big picture look at what Matthew is doing here with Joseph. All right, so we already had to refer back to Genesis for the virgin birth. Um, Matthew is sending us back again, not explicitly, but with the subtext. In the book of Genesis, we are introduced to another man named Joseph. We're going to call him Joseph, the son of Jacob. And we'll call Mary's husband, Joseph, the husband of Mary. It's confusing. I didn't say it wouldn't be confusing. We're talking about two Josephs here. Um, Some of you may know the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, from Genesis. But let me recap. Joseph, the son of Jacob, had a dream. 
got threatened by his own people, wound up in Egypt serving the king, and blessed the nations by, pre- by preserving bread for a famished world. Now, if we survey the first two chapters of Matthew, we see something similar. Joseph, the husband of Mary, has a dream. He gets threatened by his own people. He winds up in Egypt. However, Joseph, the husband of Mary, serves the king of kings, and he preserves the bread of life for a famished world. And what or who is the bread of life? John chapter 6 tells us that the bread of life is Jesus himself. And so like the, like the son of Jacob before him, the husband of Mary serves the king with distinction. Joseph, like Mary, was used by God to preserve this newborn king for our redemption. God could have accomplished our redemption a million different ways, but he chose to come as a helpless child dependent upon the faithful obedience of a newlywed couple. So newlyweds, you have a lot to live up to. But again, moms and dads, this this should lend infinite dignity to the daily grind of caring for your own children. So, we've discussed the mother and the father. Now let's look at the child. Once again, Matthew points us to the Old Testament, except this time he actually quotes the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this quote is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And if we read it in its original context, we see the prophet Isaiah speaking to people under threat from an evil empire. Through Isaiah, God is reassuring his people that because he is present with them, they will not be overtaken. They just need to trust him. And so so this verse about a virgin bearing a son was written some 800 years prior to the birth of Jesus, and yet it was relevant because the people of God were under um, threat from an evil empire then too. They were subject to Roman rule. But even more important, they were subject to sin and death. And so God is again reassuring his people that because he is with them, they will not be overtaken. Because this child is born, sin and death will soon be deposed. Sin and death will soon be stripped of their power and God's people will soon be set free. And so Emmanuel is more than just a title. It is a declaration that God has entered our realm. And when God enters our realm, we must reckon with him. When God enters our realm, things cannot stay the same. We must either accept Emmanuel as our redeemer or else he becomes our judge. Jesus Christ came to fix what Adam had broken. And so every person is left with a choice. Either we acknowledge Christ as our representative and allow him to repair what is broken within us, or we are left to suffer the consequences of our sin alone. We are either united to Adam and his failure, or we are united to Christ and his victory. There is no third option. So the arrival of Emmanuel 
was the most consequential event in human history. At the climax of human history, God took the form of a newborn baby. Our great king and conqueror came to us with meekness and humility. And that's what, that's what victory looks like in the kingdom of God. The victorious procession of our great king commenced in a manger and concluded on a cross. From his humble birth to his humiliating death, our king showed his true colors and his victory is shared with all who trust in him. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the parentheses there, Matthew actually translates the word for us. But remember, Matthew's audience was predominantly Jewish. And so he wouldn't need to translate a Hebrew word there. So why, why did he? Why would he? I believe Matthew is reiterating a truth that we uncovered last week in the genealogy. And it's that Jesus came not only for the Jews. Jesus came for everybody. The us in God with us includes you and me. God is with you. Jesus no longer walks the earth in the flesh, but because he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with us, he is still our Emmanuel. He is still our God with us. And that is an intensely practical truth. First of all, consider the comfort this must have been to Mary and to Joseph. They were caught up in the midst of a scandal. They were running for their lives. Imagine the comfort of holding Emmanuel in your arms, literally. So we should take great comfort in knowing that God is with us. In the midst of severe anxiety or depression, when you're tempted to think no one gets it, no one understands. That's, God is with you. In the midst of loneliness, fear, sickness, addiction, suffering, God is with you. When you breathe your last breath, God is with you. When you watch your children go to kindergarten or college or get married, you can trust that God is with them. Because God is a father who never misses a recital or a little league game. God is with us. God is with us gives meaning to the mundane. It redefines the meaning of being alone or thinking that no one is watching. God is in our homes, in our neighborhoods, dwelling everywhere we dwell. Your neighborhood parish uh, manifest God's presence for those who desperately need it. God is with us. Um, with a little faith, God is with us, changes everything. And so we've seen that Jesus is the true and greater Adam, born of a virgin to defeat the curse of sin and death. We've seen that Jesus is the bread of life preserved by Joseph to feed the hungry nations. And we've seen that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us to save and to judge. So what should we do? We should believe. We should believe that Jesus truly is God with us. 
The ultimate consequence of sin is death. And Jesus faced that consequence despite the fact that no one in human history deserved it less. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Here's his offer to you, to to me. Here is his offer to us. If we would allow his suffering for sin to be our suffering for sin, he will allow his resurrection from the dead to be our resurrection from the dead. That is a win-win situation like you will never see again. He takes our suffering, we get his life. And so we should acknowledge our sin and give it to Jesus. We should trust him with our brokenness. Because only he is able to repair what is broken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for this church, for the season of Advent. Um, Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming with humility and meekness. Thank you for being God with us, for being our Emmanuel. I do pray that that truth would would become practical for us, that your, your presence with us, your presence with us would be an encouragement, would be all the reason we need to live holy lives. And I pray that your presence with us would would grow us into exactly the church you would have us be. In Jesus' name, amen.